And we're back here on Unusual Sources, 93.3 CFMU-FM, broadcasting to Hamilton at 93.3 on the FM dial and via our live streaming website at cfmu.ca. That's cfmu.ca. You can listen to us right now. So if you have friends out of town who want to hear, say, our interview with Eve Engler, you can just tune in at cfmu.ca. It's live streaming and it will be archived right there on the website. So I do believe we are joined by Canadian journalist, author, and someone who's coming to Hamilton shortly, Eve Engler. Eve, thanks for being on the program with us today. Thanks for having me, Ben. Well, it's not the first time. must be at least the 10th time. Actually, it's the 10th time you've come to Hamilton and much more than the 10th time you've been on this program. You're one of our long-running favorite guests. And uh, before I say anything else, let me point out this book. It's Left Right, Marching to the Beat of Imperial Canada's Foreign Policy. It's going to be launching here in Hamilton on Monday, September 24th at 7 o'clock p.m., at a location that's familiar to many of our listeners, the New Vision United Church. That's Monday, September 24th, 7 o'clock p.m. at the New Vision United Church. Admission is free. It's also going to be, I I hear Eves is going to be at McMaster here right at Mac at uh, 12.30 p.m. that same day, but the room is not yet determined. We'll let you know. Admission is free for both events. Uh, You can talk to Eve, get a copy of the book, which I strongly encourage people to do because this is easily one of the most interesting books uh, we've had come our our way in a long time. Uh, Look, it's your 10th book, Eve, and it really shows. I'd say it's a a mature work. It um, relates to what you have done as an activist personally, and it ties into your other books about the propaganda system in Canada, about Canada and Haiti, about Canada and Palestine, and numerous other topics. And, uh, you know, it kind of makes me wonder, would you say that your experience as an activist, like working with the uh, Haiti Action Network, do you think it's helped you understand the issues in this book? Oh, for sure. Uh, I mean, uh, there's a number of uh, uh, personal uh, uh, stories from from engaging with the NDP on the question of Haiti to uh, <clears throat> uh, engaging with... Uh, um, Paul Dewar, the former foreign critic for the for the NDP, and and uh, and seeing that you know this is not just a question of uh, of lack of information, but it's a question of uh, of uh, often very conscious uh, not wanting to hear information that goes against what's in the what's in the dominant media and what um, and what is easy to uh, sort of go along with. Um, so uh, yeah, the, I mean the activism. Uh, engaging on a whole bunch of different uh, uh, international solidarity uh, issues is, is definitely uh, informs this this uh, this book. Right now, for those listeners who might not know a lot about the book, um, of course, it is about the failure of the institutional left in Canada to oppose empire. That that is to say, Canadian imperialism, militarism, involvement in the empires, whether it's British or American. It's it's the failure to throw off colonial attitudes and to engage with the peoples of the world from the perspective of the oppressed and and oppose our own capitalist class. So what Eve is doing in this book, which again is called Left Right, Marching to the Beat of Imperial Canada's Foreign Policy, is he's looking at four main areas of Canada's institutional left. The Social Democratic Party, or parties uh, in, in English Canada looking at the NDP, which Eve just mentioned, um, Labour, uh, labor unions, organized labor, uh, think tanks, left-wing think tanks, and public intellectuals, prominent people writing in newspapers and commenting on TV as public intellectuals. And, you know, Eve, you were just alluding to this. Um, 
we have a propaganda system in this country and in most other countries. You have written a book about the propaganda system in Canada and how it manufactures consent for Canadian interventions and militarism and things like that. And in, in the uh, introduction to this book, you talk about how this propaganda system in Canada um, you know, is largely responsible for why Canadians acquiesce to our government's foreign policy, even when it involves invasions and bombing countries and destabilizing countries and so on. Uh, we're taught that um, it's the right thing to do. There's this huge network of media and think tanks and so on that build consent uh, to, to have us support that. But you also say in the introduction that the other part of why this sort of thing is allowed to happen without much or any resistance is because uh, the people that are supposed to be protecting us from empire and capitalism and so on, that, that is our, our institutional left, um, they, they often, in, in so many cases, do not challenge this and often believe in, in myths that support it. Um, so you talked, you mentioned the NDP there, and that's interesting to us here. Uh, in anti-war activism, we engage with a lot of organizations, uh, from labor unions to uh, media to the NDP, and uh, we've done lobbying and work in the NDP to try to get them to adopt better foreign policy positions. And it, it's, a, it's a tense battleground. Uh, and I was just absolutely fascinated by the early chapters of your book because I was there and many people I know were there for, for parts of that. Um, when you talked about how you and others were part of the Haiti you know, delegation in, in, the, in, in the NDP talking about what Canada's role there was and what we should do about it. And I, I was present for that and uh, at the Afghanistan conference uh, policy convention in 2006 um, and uh, a number of the Palestine-related meetings and such. And so I, I can vouch for a lot of what you're saying personally. Um, you know, the NDP is important. It, it shapes domestic policy and foreign policy to an extent, uh, shapes consciousness among the left-wing people here. So your, your analysis was fascinating. You took a deep look at the NDP, going back to when it was founded as the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, the CCF, you, you kind of wanted to know what happened. Where did it start out? How did it get to where it, where it was? So, you know, it seemed to me things started out well enough. Uh, I was wondering if you could tell us about the CCF's founding document there, uh, the Regina Manifesto, because it kind of talked about imperialism and, and the dangers of capitalism, and, and that seemed to be the sensibility of the party at first. So, you know, how did it start out? I mean, they, they, they were kind of skeptical of foreign intervention and great wars and the empire, weren't they? Yeah, the early on, the CCF, the uh, Regina Manifesto and, and a number of other sort of documents that influenced the founding, um, do they certainly uh, criticize capitalism. Uh, they refer to imperialism a few times. Uh, there's calls, you know, there's peace calls. Um, uh, I think that the even on foreign policy, certainly on domestic policy, but even on foreign policy would be um, <clears throat> uh, much more internationalist than what uh, the NDP would produce as a document uh, today. Um, but there was there was a there was still a down a downgrading of uh, of foreign policy issues, um, and uh, but 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 you know it's it there, but it's really. With World War II and in the aftermath of World War II, that the the CCF goes into a decidedly pro uh, empire uh, direction, and uh, you know immediately after World War II supports the Marshall Plan, supports the establishment of NATO, supports the the war in, in Korea. In fact, cheerleads the war in Korea, where uh, even is out and ahead of the of, of the government in calling for for for, for Canadian ground troops. Uh, in 1950, uh, um, so they take this this 
disposition that is very much about, you know, this is what these uh, endeavors, Marshall Plan, NATO, are about, about really sort of restructuring the world uh, geopolitics to uh, to the, the whims of Washington and Canada. Uh, Lester Pearson and Canadian officials are, are uh, quite significant players in this. And uh, the CCF really endorses this wholeheartedly. They endorse, they endorse things like... Uh, 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 the, the British campaign against uh, against uh, nationalizing oil in Iran, um, uh, even though you know they're calling for nationalizing of lots of elements of Canadian uh, economic life, and and they and they they pursue this policy um, aggressively, and they also pursue it uh, against the the uh, the desires of much of the membership, or that's at least not clear. What's clear is that they try to suppress efforts by the membership um, to, for instance, debate the, the, Korea, the Korean War in 1950. So just before the convention in, uh, in uh, August of 1950 in Vancouver, the Executive Council comes out <clears throat> with a statement strongly in support of, of the war effort, basically making it impossible for the convention to debate uh, for the members to debate the issue uh, in the, in the coming days, uh, uh, they they when when members are pushing uh, things like the Stockholm uh, uh, a petition to to ban nuclear weapons, um, the they they work to undermine uh, any connection between uh, CCF activists and the Canadian Peace Congress, um, which was pushing the Stockholm petition to ban nuclear weapons. They, they you know they, they dub it a uh, a front for for communism. Um, uh, they, a whole series of measures. They even kick kick people out of the party, uh, pro- fairly prominent people in Manitoba out of the party for for their activism opposing NATO, opposing the Marshall Plan. So so there's this this. Uh, this uh, uh, strong alignment with uh, sort of post post World War II Cold War uh, uh, militarism, Western Western foreign policy that is uh, is pursued in a in a way that's uh, um, quite uh, anti uh, anti democratic within the party. Yes, the the CCF originally it seemed you know domestically and on foreign policy to be more radical than the later NDP. Um, and there's also a story you can tease out here, which you can see in, in the pages of your book, which is that th- there's often the base or the membership or grassroots of the CCF NDP um, are often more skeptical about war and interventions and, and things like that. Um, and, and the leadership comes in and suppresses them and says, no, we're going to do things this way. And, and you mentioned the Cold War period after World War II. That's when it really ratchets up. Uh, and they're coming in and just giving the sort of NATO line on on everything from the top leadership uh, downwards. I think um, there was even talk of bringing um, Bevan uh, from from the UK. He wanted to speak, or he was he could speak in Canada. The membership wanted it. The leadership didn't seem enthusiastic about allowing the that great socialist from the UK to speak uh, in, in Canada. So um, they're they're taking direction, even even still from Britain on foreign policy um, after after World War Two. And uh, as you pointed out. Um, the the NDP the CCF are opposing countries like Iran that are trying to nationalize their resources while we might support it here so you know what's good for us isn't good for them that's a policy we see continued later on so I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that um, so if we move ahead skip ahead to more modern times that we might be more familiar with um, we're looking perhaps at Haiti and Palestine because um, 
again, uh, like like many other anti-war or anti-imperial policies from the old CCF days, um, the CCF's original position on Palestine it wasn't so bad when it started out. They were they were kind of skeptical of Zionism as as a right-wing phenomenon, and uh, that seemed to change though too, I mean, didn't it? I mean, as time went on, this the, um, the skepticism uh, dissipated. For sure, I mean the. Uh, J.S. Whitworth, the head of the CCF, uh, is is critical of Zionism uh, in the late 30s, um, and uh, and the, NEP, or the CCF convention even refuses to endorse uh, Zionism. I believe in uh, 1942, uh, still refuses to endorse Zionism, and uh, and they, Woodworth talks about it being you know sort of why pick on the Arabs uh, except for except for alignment with uh, British Empire. He, he, he's, he states that, so it's, it was understood that this was, uh, you know, this was the Balfour Declaration, and this was, this was an outgrowth. Zionism was very much an outgrowth of, uh, of British imperial uh, policy at the time, um, and uh, so, so, so there's this skepticism, but that changes uh, uh, fairly quickly with the creation of Israel, and then, and then, um, 1948, and then, then the, the, the party becomes uh, very much in favor of, of Israeli policy and defending. Uh, Defending even like weapons, weapon sales uh, in the mid '50s to Israel, uh, uh, you know, denying, basically denying uh, Palestinians' existence into the into the late '60s, '70s, um, uh, and uh, and continuing on to today. I mean, it's it's sort of been ebbed and flowed a little bit based upon recent leadership, um, but I think the question of of Palestine is one where t- up to today. Uh, you had, you know, someone like Tom Walker, who was a staunch supporter of, of Israel. Uh, but you have a, the base of the party that has gone in a completely different direction, and the base of the party um, is, is very much in favor of Palestinian rights. And the NDP is willing to go to quite, quite uh, extreme lengths to block the base of the party's uh, voice to be heard. And, uh, you know, there's three conventions that I discussed in the book over the past uh uh, 12 years or so, uh, where the, the leadership has worked to uh, to suppress um, uh, resolutions uh, uh, standing in solidarity with, with Palestinians. The most extreme example was the, at the recent convention, which probably some listeners are familiar with, where there's this Palestine resolution that's the most widely adopted foreign policy resolution, second most widely adopted resolution by, uh, by local writing associations in the lead-up to the convention, um, in, in, in any resolution in the whole thing on any different issue, and uh, and they bury the resolution way down, so making it impossible to discuss it. And when there is an attempt to uh, to change the order of of, uh, of the of what will be discussed on the actual convention floor, they pull all kinds of shenanigans, um, bring in all their all the sort of uh, um, the, the the flacks within the party, all the all the leadership, all the MPs are there early in the morning to to vote down this attempt to actually have a discussion about this very widely. Um, uh, supported resolution. Yes, and this is not. This is not just only on, on on Palestine, as you as you kind of alluded to. But there's another example of that on Haiti in 2006. Uh, this is this this is a somewhat of a recurring theme where when there is um, a, a push from below on uh, to be you know critical of elements of Canadian foreign policy, uh, um, it's it's almost always. Um, uh, you know, in in in, uh, in battle with the leadership, and very rarely does the leadership actually, uh, uh, you know, support it. And, and in fact, often they pull different kind of uh, um, maneuvers to 
to, to block it. Yeah, for those who don't know, of course, um, there was that recent policy convention w- uh, in the NDP that Eve was referring to, and we actually had a gentleman who had been present at that, uh, Henry Evans Tenbrink, and uh, Doug Brown, our co-host, was there too, I think, and they talked about on the program exactly what, what you're referring to there. Um, there there was an, a big push, and that's the word I would have used, a big push by the grassroots uh, to finally get the NDP to adopt more openly pro-Palestine positions, recognizing the, 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 the occupation and that Canada's position on this has been unfair and lopsided and so on, and to, to address these problems. And, and a lot of enthusiasm, young people there, and um, they, the, I, there's video of the convention. You can see people lined up with signs, you know, at the conference debate. And everyone is, there's a lot of energy, and they thought they just might pass it, but they, they were just barely defeated. Uh, the, as you said, they, they used a lot of administrative tools to, to keep that resolution low on the list and things like that, delay it, block it, and bring in uh, party functionaries and so on uh, to stall and whatever. Uh, so, um, you know, uh, th- there is this this base versus leadership uh, issue in the party. Uh, now, for those who are just tuning in, of course, uh, we are speaking with Eve Angler about his brand new book, which is not launched yet. It's launching in a couple weeks. It's called Left Right, Marching to the Beat of Imperial Canada's Foreign Policy. Um, and you'll be able to pick up a copy in Hamilton uh, when Eve presents the book. Um, and yes, Eve's uh, the, the Haiti thing. I mean, you know, you were there, I was there. And um, it was the same kind of struggle. And, and Afghanistan, too, uh, the 2006 policy convention, the, the membership got um, the NDP to adopt, maybe maybe become the first um, uh, party in the uh, English-speaking world, the first party with elected members to call for withdrawal from Afghanistan. And you look at how the NDP walked away, backed away from that over time, um, even though it got them a lot of attention and support from parts of the country. So uh, they, they're scared of their, their own shadow sometimes. But uh, now the Cold War is back, right? Not just uh, Afghanistan and the war on terror and all that, but we got the Cold War, uh, there's Ukraine, and it looks like the NDP is trying to show it's the number one anti-Russia promoter, and it's very gung-ho about Canadian involvement in Ukraine. Uh, Probably a far cry from what the early CCF grassroots would have supported. There, there's even support for Ukraine's far right now. What, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, the, the uh, NDP uh, foreign critic, Elena Vadier, has, has uh, supported uh, uh, you know, Canadian, uh, train, uh, Canadian military training in, in Ukraine, has supported uh, uh, I mean, there's these examples where uh, MPs have, have marched at uh, at rallies, uh, Ukrainian uh, Canadian rallies in Toronto, for instance, where march uh, with uh, groups from the right sector, even actually uh, NDP uh, MP shared a stage with a um, uh, uh, spokesperson from the right sector. Right sector is this you know far right sort of fascistic group within the Ukraine um, has you know the tied into the uh, the whole history of of uh, anti-Semitic fascism in the, in uh, uh, in Ukraine. And uh, and NDP endorsing. I mean, going to the point of even calling for a liquor control board to ban Russian to ban Russian uh, uh, wines or sort of Russian vodkas in, uh, in, in in at Canadian liquor stores. Uh, NDP uh, party both in uh, in uh, Alberta that pursued that and uh, and uh, and in Manitoba. And so taking this really just extreme supporting Canadian troop buildup uh, in in Latvia, right? There's Canadian 450 Canadian troops in Latvia, all part of this this anti-Russian kind of kind of hysteria. Um, something that obviously justifies militarism, justifies you know military spending increases, and the NDP has you know aligned with with that policy, and and it's it's uh, you know overwhelmingly what shapes 
NDP foreign policy today is basically what appears in the uh, Global Mail and, uh, and you know, on CTV. Uh, they follow the dominant media on foreign policy. So if, it's, if, it's, uh, if the dominant media is saying uh, the bad guys are, uh, are uh, so-and-so in uh, Kiev, then, uh, then that's what the NDP uh, follows along with. Uh, unless there's a grassroots push going in a different direction. And so, and so you see, you know, from, from the Ukraine to Venezuela, right? Venezuela, in, in recent uh, years, the NDP uh, has really gone along, Elena Verdier specifically, has gone along with this uh, efforts to destabilize the elected government in Venezuela, sometimes even criticizing uh, Stephen Harper from the right on the question of Venezuela. Uh, to, you know, take a look at Syria and, you know, something like the White Helmets, the NDP very much supporting uh, uh, the Canadian funding of the White Helmets, of, of, uh, of, um, of uh, the tour of White Helmets in Canada. So, so the NDP foreign policy very much still is very much motivated, pushed by what appears in the dominant media. Um, and, uh, and that's just, uh, you know, that what appears in the dominant media is basically what... Uh, what the people at the State Department uh, and uh, and the CIA uh, want uh, want uh, Canadians and Americans um, to hear about. Well, yeah, it ties into your broader analysis. I mean, on the one hand, the NDP is sort of a follower party rather than a leader party on foreign policy. At one time, it might have been a leader on foreign policy, but now it, it gets its ideas from CNN and, and the mainstream news and so on about what countries are bad and what regimes need to be changed and so on. It's really embarrassing. Um, but, um, you know, if they do come up with their own policy, if their own ideas, when they, when they express themselves as to what we should be doing, it, it's an idea, it, it's sort of the idea that we're so good we're so good as Canada, uh, and with our our NGOs and our charity and, and our aid, that if anything, we need to be out there doing more. We, you know, uh, we we need more Canada. And sometimes they might oppose a military action um, without ex- really ex- getting into the reasons why and how and how it all works. But they'll say, "Why don't we have more aid? Why don't we have more NGOs over there? Why don't we do this for refugees? Why don't we do that?" And it ties into this concept of of liberal nationalism. Um, it's sort of this positive conception of what Canada is or what it should be. So uh, we see this throughout the institutional left, whether it be the NDP or the labor unions or the think tanks or the, the public intellectuals. So what's this, this, this liberal nationalism, this, this Pearsonian Stephen Lewis vision of Canada that informs the NDP and all these other bodies? Well, well you see it even with like Afghanistan, even on an issue where finally after lots of grassroots pressure, after lots of uh, opinion polls showing Canadians weren't supportive of uh, the war in Afghanistan. If you look at the criticism that Jack Layton, uh, the former head of the party, made, uh, and the other defense critic and others at different points, um, was, was well, what we have our soldiers are, are tied up in Afghanistan, and that's making it so that we can't send more troops to a UN mission in Sudan, or we can't send more troops to a UN mission in Haiti. Uh, we can't be doing our, what are, what's supposed to be our traditional uh, benevolent uh, UN peacekeeping uh, 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 role. So, so basically, they're saying we we have to lessen our military involvement here, uh, so we can you know bull, bully someone else there. Um, they can't just say, okay, let's just withdraw the troops because either this is not working or this is immoral. They they uh, they the criticism is couched in it's implicit that Canada is just a you know, force for good, and so we just have to be doing good somewhere else. 
and and that, as you pointed out, is is really is is this liberal nationalist uh, ideology. Obviously, just to back up a second, the the military likes that type of criticism because it's saying that you know it's not it's not challenging the military budget. It's not challenging the industries that that that. Uh, that make money off of the military. So if you're saying just move from one military endeavor to another, you're not going at the actual institution. So that, there's one reason why that, that uh, criticism is appealing to, to power. But the other reason for why the, 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 how, or how the, uh, that type of criticism uh, fits into power is it fits into this ideology that Canada is a benevolent force in the world, that uh, it's tied to peacekeeping, it's tied to responsibility to protect, um, and it's tied to this whole conception of, of, of benevolent Canadian foreign policy, and, and polls show that 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 uh, it's 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 uh, Canadians are uh, among the, the strongest believers in their country's role around the world, um, and uh, and it's upheld very aggressively by by you know left wing uh, institutions, be it the Rideau Institute, uh, uh, left wing uh, think- thinkers and politicians, someone like Stephen Lewis. And it's just to take someone like Stephen Lewis, and he he doesn't his only criticism of Canada's role in Africa that I came across, and I re- researched this very in depth. The only criticism I came across that he made of Canada's role in Africa, he's obviously very well known as the you know, biggest proponent of Africa in Canada. Um, the criticism is that Canada's not doing enough. They haven't given enough aid, um, uh, and he sometimes can make that criticism in really over the top aggressive terms, like. You know, Africa, Africa is going to fail if there's not more aid put in. Funnily enough, he never really investigates what Canadian aid has been used for in Africa. So, for instance, Canadian aid was used to uh, to, su- to to support uh, militaries in the post-colonial period to ma- maintain those militaries of, of former British colonies to maintain them as close to. The British military, close to Western military, and in one case, in the case of Ghana in 1966, Canadian aid actually went to uh, into uh, Canadian trained military, ousted uh, Kwame Nkrumah, well-known Pan-Africanist. Um, uh, also, if you look m- more recently, Canadian aid has gone to structural adjustment programs, which have been incredibly devastating across the continent. Canadian aid has gone to supporting Canadian mining companies. Uh, uh, so, so this the the criticism doesn't look at how are our policies undermining African liberation, African sovereignty, and how are our corporations extracting the wealth of Africa, because Canadian mining companies being the preeminent force on the continent, uh, $30 billion or so of Canadian mining investment in in Africa, they're they're taking out billions of dollars every year in profit. Um, So the criticism doesn't look into those uh, those policies, and that's really the, when you get into the thrust of Canadian policy in Africa, that is what the thrust of Canadian policy is. It's about sporting mining companies. It's about uh, Canada being tied in with, with U.S., British, uh, and to some extent French uh, influence on the continent. Um, but that, but, but that criti- those types of criticisms are just basically pushed aside, um, and it's, the presumption is that Canadian uh, uh, policy is uh, inherently uh, uh, benevolent, and that, that uh, not that King policy is being driven by by corporations and by imperial thinking, um, but rather by benevolence. 
Yes, and you're listening to Unusual Sources here on 93.3 CFMU, broadcasting live out of McMaster Radio, and you're available online at cfmu.ca. We are, of course, speaking about Eve Engler's brand new book, Left Right, Marching to the Beat of Imperial Canada's Foreign Policy, which is launching uh, in Hamilton on the 24th of September. You can find information at hcsw.ca. Now, this book, again, it's why and how the institutional left fails to oppose this, this imperialism, this, these activities by uh, development agencies, by Canadian corporations, mining companies, and so on that you're referring to there, Eve. And I recall when my undergraduate class was invited to go to a lecture um, with Stephen Lewis here at McMaster, and um, he talked about, you know, look at these people, they're suffering, and here's a child who's sick, and there's AIDS, and it's so bad, but we can help, and we have our Canadian involvement, and, and so on and so on, and everyone was just tearing up, and it was just, oh, so heartwarming, and we can do something, and it appeals to youth, also to baby boomers, I think uh, Brendan Campisi or someone on Twitter was talking about baby boomers they have this vision of a canada this liberal canada that's so kind and generous and helping and all we want to do is go to africa give them a hand up you know help them up and um and and they think that for example the harper government was this giant move away from that that nice canada so there's this vision of a nice canada and we have some of these left-wing think tanks that are reproducing the ideology of canada as peacemaker canada as aid distributor and only as that so uh, you could mention briefly the Rideau Institute here. I think they're promoting this ideology of peacekeeping. You know, how does that translate to their approaches on things like Haiti or Palestine? Yeah, well, the, I mean, the Rideau Institute is uh, maybe Canada's only sort of foreign policy uh, think tank. Uh, it sort of skews towards the military sphere, so it tends to less be involved in more sort of diplomatic area of discussion. Uh um, and uh, the, you know, first of all, the head of the Rideau Institute, Peggy Mason, as somebody who's th- three decades of, of background in Canadian foreign policy, she she was uh, uh, worked for uh, the right hand person for Joe Clark, who was uh, uh, Brian Mulroney's uh, uh, foreign policy uh, uh, foreign minister, um, and uh, and so she's got this whole background. She, you know, uh, in 2012, she talks about how she has been working for NATO for the past 10 years, so she does trainings for NATO soldiers in, in, in UN peacekeeping missions. Um, so she's somebody, uh, and she continues to do that until at least as a few, as a few months ago. Um, uh, so she's somebody who's, who's, she's from the sort of peacekeeping end of the establishment discussion, and that's who heads up uh, the leading uh, critical uh, foreign policy uh, institute in the country. So, in other words, somebody, not somebody who's really going to rock the boat uh, on, on Canadian foreign policy. Now, if you take a look at um, uh, one of the people they've collaborated with the most, Walter Dorn. Walter Dorn is the leading advocate of, of peacekeeping uh, in this country. Uh, he's a professor at the Royal, Royal Military College. Uh, in Kingston, which is a, a military-run uh, university uh, run by the Department of Defense, uh, and uh, and uh, he Walter Dorn is just a basically a blanket proponent of peacekeeping. So if it's a UN mission, it's ipso facto good. Uh, he actually was part of had actually an administrative role with the UN mission in Haiti um, that was the outgrowth of the 2004 coup against the elected president and thousands of other elected, elected officials who were overthrown in 2004, and then there were 
thousands of people killed in the aftermath with UN troops providing uh, decisive uh, military support for that uh, that policy. Walter Dorn was was you know actually had an administrative role within that when within that mission, uh, and he lauds that the UN the MINUSTA as it's known the French acronym um, uh, uh, repeatedly in his writing. He even gets into lauding. Uh, mission, uh, operations in City Soleil, and anyone who's paid attention to the City Soleil being the main uh, slum area of Paul Prince, uh, anyone who's paid attention to the, the Haiti in the aftermath of the coup knows there was terrible massacres in, in City Soleil. In one instance, on uh, July 6th of 2005, there was 23 people, at least 23 people killed. That was the, the UN doing that? Or? This was a UN mission, yes. It was UN forces that killed 20, 23 people. It is nighttime operation, ostensibly to get to get a, 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 a gang leader. Um, and gang leader, it, it was the line between between sort of politics and criminality, very un, uh, unclear line within City Soil. This was the community very much saw the individual Dred Wilme as a, as a resistance to the foreign military occupation. Um, and uh, and so and so this is this is Walter Dorn the 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 uh, the main collaborator with the uh, um, the Rideau Institute and you know he's he's justified uh, uh, other UN missions like the UN mission in two thousand in nineteen sixty in early nineteen sixties in the Congo that Canada was part of where Canada Canadian troops played a role in the assassination of Patrice Lumumba the independence leader in in in, in the Congo uh, even even in Korea he's even provided some degree of justification for the the UN. Korean mission in the early war in the early 1950s. So this is somebody who's who aligns with, um, you know, supported the the war in Libya in 2011. Uh, his criticism, he states openly that he you know believes in this a couple of years ago that the Canadian military budget should be the the, the way it is. Um, this is somebody whose books have been blurbed by uh, Bob Ray, who is a former foreign. Uh, critic for the Liberal Party, who'd been blurred by Lloyd Axworthy, who was obviously the foreign minister of uh, of a, the, the Croatian government, um, and so so this is this is the sort of like dissenting voice uh, that we're hearing coming out of uh, coming out of uh, the Rideau Institute, um, which is it very much aligns with um, you know it's not the hard right militarist. Uh, you know Jack Granitstein, uh, uh, but it's uh, it's it's a it's a still very much the sort of liberal end of the establishment. Yeah, yeah. I want to I want to get to that uh, briefly, because yeah. First of all, the people that are supposed to be speaking out against our military and other types of exercises abroad, interference, intervention that the CCF, for example, used to criticize. Those people that are responsible for speaking out against it are not speaking out against it. They're justifying the military budget. They're calling for more ships or more planes or more intervention. So we're not being defended from these things by a lot of the institutions that are supposed to protect us. And it, it, whatever nasty stuff Canada is getting up to in Haiti or Venezuela or Congo or whatever, you, you know that there's going to be these think tanks that are presenting this happy, good-feeling, glowing vision of what we're doing. They're presenting this liberal militarist vision for people that don't like the conservative militarist vision. And it seems to me that the right wing is often more honest about foreign policy because they might say things like, you know, we're in Iraq because, you know, we're going to smash Saddam. Canada's in Afghanistan to, you know, occupy it for the Americans, plain and simple. They, they want to be there. We are in Libya to topple the government. And I've heard right wing people tell me we created a big disaster in Libya that didn't turn out right. And, uh, 
people writing letters to the, the spectator or the Globe and Mail, they'll say, we're involved in Syria to enact a regime change for the Americans. It's to get rid of Assad. I mean, I've heard all this in person, but when it comes to the left and the think tanks and the Rideau Institutes of the world, it, it's like they need to dress it all up. You know, we're peace building and peacemaking and building civil society and liberating women. Remember, that was a big one in Afghanistan. It, it's like we need this... Responsibility big, to protect Well, that's, uh, as you say, the, the title of the book is so great, Left, Right, because it's the left promoting a right-wing view from the left. In Canada, you get the right-wing militarism, and you also get militarism, the same militarism repackaged in the left. It's like we, we get this big fluffy narrative to ease our conscience and enlist our support in a grand project and to sugarcoat this militarist pill. We have to have it sugarcoated on the left. So <laughs> there we are. I know it's about time to go, but um, I just got to say, yeah, your, your book, some of the things you mentioned reminded me of an older book we talked about on this program before. It was uh, by Larry Krotz. It was called The Uncertain Business of Doing Good. Um, and it was looking at aid projects and relief projects. And he was trying to say, you know, it's hard to do good. If you come from another country and you want to fix things in a village or something, you can go wrong. You can actually do harm. It's hard, even if your intentions are the best, to, to, to do good. And, of course, we know that Canada's intentions are often not the best. So you talk about, in the closing, about how we need to have a, a foreign policy based on the, the old medical rule of do no harm. First, do no harm. And then the golden rule of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I think that's an important uh, direction to go in. And I know you'll be telling us more about that in the talk. We've certainly gone over some big issues. And actually, the book is very succinct. It's short. It's 150 pages. It's very readable. You don't have to have read anything by Eve. It's just to present Canadians with what their, their left is doing or not doing in protecting them from being complicit in imperialism and, and things like that. So it's a really readable book. It's, I, everyone I know got through it very quickly in those pre-production drafts. I'm really excited. I think everyone should be there. There's no reason not to be reading this book. I can't imagine a more important one right now. So, Eve, thanks so much for being on the program with us. Thanks a lot for having me. We'll catch you later. Yeah. Bye. And that was indeed Eve Engler.